Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you send out the drought and you send out streams of water. God, you are sovereign over all these things. And Lord, we're not asking you for a drought today, Lord. We're asking you for streams of water, Lord, even streams of living water from your word. So Heavenly Father, would you please make nothing of me this morning and make everything of yourself and in you and in the, in the face of Christ that we'll see in this psalm, Lord, could you satisfy our souls with good things? Do this for us, we pray, Lord, so that the reception of your Son, so that receiving him by faith, so that can abound in thanksgiving to the glory and the honor and the praise of Jesus Christ among your people. Help us with these things, God. We want you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Around three years ago, uh, I started having symptoms of what I thought was a flu. Actually, I, I thought it was COVID. And uh, it wasn't until I couldn't really stand and I started blacking out a bunch that, that my wife and I got concerned. So uh, she did what any good wife would do. And, and she drugged me to the car and she rushed me to the ER. Uh, I could preach a whole sermon on the power and the grace of God that helped my five foot nothing wife drag me into our, into our car. But um, we're in Psalm 107 today. So, so we got to the hospital and long story short, as many of you know, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, right? And so, uh, and I was really thankful for the hospital staff. I was, I was super thankful. They made me feel a lot better. The nurses were quick, they were kind, they were clear. I was really thankful. On the last day there though, they told us something that kind of freaked us out. I was there for a week and a couple hours before they discharged me and let me go, the nurses and the doctor pulled my wife and I aside and they said, you know, like, we weren't sure he was going to make it when he got here. We didn't want to freak you guys out, but just so you know now, so you can be thankful, we were thinking he might have died and if you brought him a couple hours later, he probably would have slipped into a coma and he for sure would have died. And what did that do to me when, when I heard that? That made me a lot more thankful, right? Because at first I just thought, well, the nurses and the doctors, they were quick and they made me feel better, right? But now that I knew what an awful state I was in, how close I was to death, I was, I was so much more thankful because they didn't just make me feel better. They saved my life, right, over that week. So, so knowing the severity of the situation helped me to abound in thanksgiving, helped me to be more thankful, and that's sort of like what uh, we're going to see in Psalm 107 today. It's what God does for God's people. So the psalmist, probably David, he holds up four pictures, four illustrations in this psalm. And he paints pictures of how desperate God's people were before he redeemed them. He shows us four kind of people that, that God redeems, why they need redemption, how God redeemed them. And what the psalmist wants us to do with this information, well, well it says here in the psalm so many times, verse 8, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 15, let them give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. Verse 21, let them give thanks to the Lord. Verse 31, let them give thanks to the Lord. The King James translation says, oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord. Oh, that they would give thanks to the Lord. It bothers the psalmist when people aren't giving thanks. And so his goal with this psalm, and I hope my goal this morning is to get you to abound in thanksgiving, to get you to give thanks to the Lord, to show you something of what the Lord has done for you so that you can give thanks for his wonderful works to the children of man. 
Before we dive into the text this morning, though, I just want to take a minute to uh, recognize a couple of technical realities. I'm going to explain to you how I'm going to walk through this psalm, and I'm going to justify it biblically. So I want to tell you how I'm going to walk through this psalm, and then tell you why. Usually when we preach psalms, usually when I preach psalms anyway, I walk through the psalm with its historical, uh, covenantal, geographical context, which is certainly here in this psalm, and what it meant to David, what it meant to the Israelites, and then at the end of the psalm, usually, then I'll explain how Christ fulfills the psalm and how it applies to us in the new covenant today, you know? Kind of like pulling a bunny out of a hat, you know? You walk through the psalm, and then at the end, whoa, Jesus is in here, who would have thought, you know? I'm not going to do that this morning. That's a, that's a good approach to do that. I think this psalm calls for us to do something else. So there are geographical, covenantal, contextual realities going on here, and we'll talk about a few of those as necessary. And the psalmist, he's probably writing about Judah returning from the exile, right? So in stanza 1, verse 4 to 9, talks about people being brought back from a wasteland, from wandering around and then coming back to the land, finding good things there. In stanza 2, 10 to 16, the psalmist writes about imprisoned slaves. In stanza 3, he writes about sick people on the brink of death. And in stanza 4, he writes about people on the waves of the sea on a ship, right? And these are all, these are all exile realities, right? David's writing about the exile from Judah, the return from the exile from Judah, and thanking God for that. But there's just one strange thing about that. When David wrote this, the exile hadn't happened yet. The exile hadn't happened yet, and, and especially the return from the exile hadn't happened yet, the salvation from it, right? And so what David's doing here is he's looking forward into the future, right? So, something prophetically, something, there's some other things going on here. But in this psalm, David's already expecting or looking towards an amazing salvation from an awful reality that's not even going to happen in his lifetime or even for hundreds of years after his lifetime. It's almost like he's looking forward into the future while he's writing this psalm and thinking, when God finally saves his people, when there's that, that ultimate salvation, we've experienced a taste of it coming out of Egypt as a people. But when there's that final salvation, what will it be like? And David writes the psalm from that perspective. And so, yes, there's exile tones going on here. But again, David, even he as he writes this psalm, is looking forward to a future full salvation for God's people. And I just want to follow David's lead one more step and consider the ultimate salvation that we find, not from the exile from, from Babylon or from the pagan nations, but the exile that we find from sin and death and hell. Like, we, we were saved from an exile, and this does speak to that exile. And the goal of this psalm is to get you to abound in thanksgiving. We, we should love the exile story, and we should be thankful for who our God is, but... I don't imagine you can be quite as thankful for the Israelites coming back from Babylon as you can be about you being saved from your exile. So, again, noting the Old Testament realities, I want to walk through this psalm focusing on our salvation today, and I think that there's biblical warrant to do that. You know, you think of Peter writing, it was revealed to them that they wrote these things not for themselves, but for you, right? Paul says, was this written for oxen? Was this written for just the Old Covenant people? No, it was written for our sakes. This psalm was written to us, and I want you to abound in thanksgiving for your salvation that you've experienced from your desperation today. So, with that in mind, let's dive into our text. Section one on your bulletin inserts, the purpose of this psalm, give thanks. Verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, who he has redeemed from trouble. When God redeems somebody, 
they're supposed to say so. They should have something to say about it. That's the difference between dad Christianity and true Christianity, thanksgiving. We're supposed to have something to say when God saves us. And so I want you to go from here and say so. I want you to say so to each other. I want you to say so in the congregation. I want you to say so to the unbelievers. I want you to say so. And so verse 3, he gathered these people from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. We were just in Genesis as a church together, and we were looking at Abraham and and his walk with God. And hasn't it come to pass, even in, in Saskatchewan here today, right now, that God through Abraham's offspring has blessed the nations, the people from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. And didn't Jesus say in Matthew eight eleven, many would come from the east and from the west and recline a table with Abraham in the kingdom of God. So what's in mind here? The people of God, the people of God from China, from Brazil, from Saskatchewan, the people of God from everywhere, and God wants their praise. He wants them to give thanks to the Lord. He wants the redeemed to say so. And what does he want their praise for? What did he do that he wants them to praise him about? His deliverance. So the next section in your bulletin, God's deliverance. We're going to look at these four illustrations we'll walk to together. So that's the purpose. What's God want us to do? We'll give thanks. Why? Well, let's look at these four kinds of people and see see if we can find out why. First, the lost. This first people group that we see here, they're they're lost wanderers. They're, They're never satisfied. They're, they're looking for a city. Something's out there, and they can't find it. Verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. Again, they're, they're looking for something, and, and never satisfied. Nothing ever scratches the itch. Nothing's ever enough. It's like they know something's out there, but they don't know exactly what it is, and they're just grasping into thin air. They're just grasping onto nothing, looking for it. Carson and I were in um, downtown Calgary one time. We were driving through the inner city, and she noticed something was just off about me, and, and she asked me what was wrong. And what was wrong was I, was I was looking at the streets and the sidewalks to my left and to my right, and I was overwhelmed. My soul was overwhelmed with the hopelessness around me because you see the people, hundreds of people downtown. They're pacing. They're going somewhere. They're, they're doing it fast. They're all up to something. And they're busy, but with what? Some here living for the next sail rack, you know? All excited about that. Some over here living for the next concert. Some over here living for the next weekend. Some over here living for retirement. Ted probably sees this all the time. Ted, where are you? Raise your hand. Ted. (laughs) Ted, you probably see this all the time uh, on a university campus. A bunch of young people living for what, you know? Some of them say, the the city's that way, so everybody goes and runs that way. Maybe it'll be over there. Satisfaction's there. And then I'll find it. And then another one says, the city's that way, so they all run that way. And they get there, and nothing's there. There's no city. And after a few times, they're out of breath looking for it, and they realize these people don't even know where the city is. Some people say that there isn't even a city. There's nothing to live for. There's no hope. They don't know where they're going. They're just going, these people. And they're hopeless, and they're wandering. And when, when I looked on the streets there, when I go to cities, I just you feel the tangible hopelessness in the air, wandering aimlessly. And if you watch them, you can just see their soul fainting within them. This is why ministry in, in care homes has been really transformative to me, and I would recommend it to, to everybody here. When you talk to the unsaved people at a care home, 
people who are at the end of their life who aren't saved, who don't know the Lord. There's a staggering difference, people who are saved and people who aren't in care homes. But the people who don't know the Lord, you look at their eyes and you can just, you can see it, you know, the disappointment, the thirst, the weariness. You all, you all know someone like this probably. They spent their whole life wandering and they spent all of their youth looking for that city. And you know what? They were in a desert. Like the psalm says, they found no way to the city. It wasn't out there. Just empty promises. And weren't we all wanderers? You know, doesn't Ephesians 2 say, separated from Christ, you and I, before we found Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to that city, you know, without hope in the world, without God, far off, aliens. Some of you got saved late enough to feel this. Some of you remember what that hopelessness was like. Some of you remember the pointlessness of it all until you found Christ. And some, it's going to stay that way for, sadly, but it doesn't stay that way for all. Verse 6, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. The redeemed got, they got tired of the world. They realized there, there was no city out there. There was nothing out there for them. It was empty promises, and instead of looked in, looking forward anymore, now they look up. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, second half of verse 6, and he delivered them in their distress. Some of us were slow to call on the Lord in our hopelessness. But you know what? You know what this psalm is saying? The Lord wasn't slow to deliver. As slow as we are to eventually get desperate enough to call on the Lord, as soon as you call on him, he's there. We're slow to call, but he's never slow to deliver. He wants people to call on him. Verse 7, he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. You know what Christ does? He grabs the wandering sinner by the hand who's wandering, and he makes sure that they make it to the promised city. He sees to it that they get there. He he doesn't just feel bad for them and then give them a map and say, you can figure it out. He takes them and he sees to it that he gets there. He brings them by a straight way till they find the city to dwell in. And what's the city? It's the, it's the city of God. And we've been talking about this a lot in Genesis, but I'm, I'm going to read from you again, for you again from Hebrews 13. It says, here we have no lasting city, emptiness, but we look forward to a city to come. Hebrews 13, 14, one that can't be shaken, one that can't be taken from us, one that will satisfy forever and forever and forever. And it's not like the putrid cities of earth, you know, with with rust destroying everything and then the cheap lights and the cheap sail racks and the cheap lights just promising you things that they can't deliver on. It's not like that city. It's a real city handmade by your creator for you so that you could thrive and be full and and satisfied forever. And if you've called out to him, that's where he's taking you. That's where you're going. So thank him for his steadfast love that grabs you by the hand and leads you there. Verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You know what makes the city so satisfying? What makes the city a place where, where the longing soul is filled with good things? It's that Christ is there. Jesus says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Christ is the one who is the good things to the soul. Christ is the one who fills us. Christ is what makes that city so satisfying. Augustine famously said, Oh God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Amen. And the only way to find rest in Christ, it's 
to call out to him. The person in the illustration here, they were weak, they were weary. It says their souls fainted within them. So from that, I don't imagine that their call was too luxurious. I don't imagine that their call was a very loud or, or, or big call. It was just a, a faint whimper, probably. And the Lord came. You know what this psalm says? If we cry, he's coming. So that's the, that's the first illustration. I want to point you to the second illustration now in your bulletins, the imprisoned. In the first illustration, the psalmist doesn't say anything about the person's sin. It, it sort of shows them like a wandering victim almost, uh, like a sufferer more than a sinner, right? Uh, they're at the mercy of the hopelessness of the world, and God pities them and saves them. But in this next illustration, you'll notice that this person's affliction that they're having here, it, it's their own fault because of their own sin. Verse 10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in afflicted irons, why? Verse 11. For they had rebelled against the word of God's and spurned the counsel of the Most High. This is someone who thought that God's word was way too restrictive, and we've all heard it before. You're telling me I can't drink? You're telling me I can't sleep with my girlfriend? You're telling me I can't watch this filthy thing? You're telling me I can't make this kind of crude? That's too restrictive. That's restrictive. I don't want that. I want to be free, so I want to live my own way. So... They go and try and live their own way. I've had conversations with people, and you know what they say to me? I've, I've been counting. This is three times I've been told this now in my life. Not a lot, but it's a lot for this kind of thing, I think. Three people have told me, Jordan, I don't even care if it's true. I'm not doing it. I'm not becoming a Christian because I'd have to give this up. I'd have to give this up. They see, the, they see the law of the Lord, and they spurn it. They reject it because they see it as constricting them. But here's the irony. Verse 10 describes them as prisoners sitting in the shadow of death, afflicted in darkness, afflicted in suffering, that they thought they were free by rejecting God's law. They thought when they lived their way that they were free, but now the consequences of their sin is caught up to us, uh, caught up to them, and it's enslaved them. It's bound them. They're trapped in, in bars of iron. And isn't that how sin is? I mean, most of us can think of decisions that we've made that still haunt us, and without Christ, those decisions would have ruined us. Decisions that, that trap us because of the consequences of sin. I love the song, uh, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And my favorite line in that song is this. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, precious savior of my ruined life. Without Christ, when we spurn the counsel of God, when we do things our way, when we think that we're free, our lives are ruined, and we all know that. We're not free. We can all think of several ways that we blew it, and if we lived as God's word said, it would actually be different, but it's not because we didn't. Jesus says, John eight thirty four, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And so now these people, they're sin's plaything. Sin rules over them. They don't rule over sin. And instead of the freedom they looked for, they're imprisoned with no power to quit, some people never escape that prison of regret and, and of sin, and so they wait in the shadow of darkness, paralyzed with shame until they die. And so who, who puts us in this prison? Well, yes, we put ourselves in our, in our own prison with our sin. That's clear here. But look at verse 12 with me. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. You see, God is the one who puts these people in this miserable estate. 
And why would he do that? Why would he put these people in a miserable estate? So that people would be desperate enough to do what verse 13 says. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Look, you have to cry out to the Lord. We must cry out to the Lord. If, if we don't cry out, he's not going to come and rescue us. But he's the one who makes us desperate for him in the first place. He won't let his people stay comfortable in his sin. He loves his people too much to leave them there, rolling around in their sin like a pig in the sludge, just loving it. He he wants to afflict them so that they get desperate, so that they call out to him and repent. And why? Because it's better to limp into the kingdom of God with your bones out of joint, broken and bleeding, than it is to waltz into heaven. God would rather afflict you unto himself then let you party your way to hell. Then let you enjoy your leisurely stroll to hell. That's why he afflicts us. That's why he set the world up in such a way so that when we sin, affliction comes. So that those who will humble themselves will call out to him and cry out to him and he'll deliver them in their distress. And even though your sin has earthly consequences and they're awful, they are, the worst consequence of your sin is hell forever. That's the real prison. That's the bars of iron that these people are in, and and every man is on the brink of death in this cage here. But even on the brink of death, what one calls out to the Lord, what, what does he do when somebody calls out to the Lord? 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, and he burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze. He cuts in two the bars of iron. He shatters the strongest gates. He shatters the strongest chains. And what could be stronger than the gates of hell? What could be stronger than than the true and just legal case that Satan and that God has against you for your sins? What's stronger than that gate? And yet, yet, let me read to you what Jesus says in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When someone calls on the Lord, he takes that cage that they were in. They were rattling on the bars of iron. They could not escape. And he takes the gates of hell and he shatters them like they were nothing. He takes you out of that cage and he throws it into the depths. And the cage goes down, but you're free. And all they will ever know, Jesus says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you won't know that cage anymore if you cry out to the Lord. All you'll know is his kindness and his favor. And lots of times his kindness will show itself in affliction, but it's only to push you to him. So be thankful. Give thanks. We'll keep running through these illustrations. Third illustration, the fool. The next illustration here, the fool, starting in verse 17 It's pretty similar to the last illustration. So we find again, someone who because of their own sin, they're trapped, they're afflicted. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. So again, all of us have been here. Most of us know someone like this. I know people whose lives have been destroyed by drugs, alcohol, things like that. Um, just pure foolishness. It says they were fools through their sinful way. But by the way, it, it doesn't have to be big, scary things like drugs that ruin a fool, right? Lust has destroyed more men than liquor. Hatred has destroyed way more men than heroin. 
It's not just big, scary sins that, that, that we put outside of us that cause this. And so because of that foolishness, people are suffering. And I, and I promise you, and you people know this from experience, because of sin, people suffer because of their own sin. And what this illustration wants to show us is that they're not just suffering, they're sick. They're sick. Verse 18, they loathed, they hated any kind of food. They didn't want food. And they drew near to the gates of death. You all know when you're super sick with a high fever, you don't want any food. You don't want anything. You're not hungry for it. Some of you here have actually been sick enough to be on the brink of death. And you know how it is. The food that would be healthy for you, the food that actually would nourish you back to health, the food that you need, it tastes like poison to you, right? Your, your caliber is broken. Something's wrong with how you're making judgment calls when you're sick. And this person is sick. Something's wrong with their desires. They loathed any kind of food. They drew near to the gates of death. And so the picture we have here is someone who's desensitized to what is right, to what is good for them. They don't have an appetite for righteousness. They've been ruined by their own foolishness, and their mind is sick. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, he describes this picture for us in detail in Romans 1. He says, since people didn't acknowledge God or give thanks to him, God gave them over to their sick minds. He let them be consumed in their sickness. He let them desire the dark things that they were desiring instead of desiring righteousness, which would heal them. He let our hearts become sick instead of being healed. So let me read to you Romans 1, 28 to 31 here, which explains this, this parable for us, I think. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, mind that's not quite right, to do what should not be done, what ought not to be done. Okay, so that's what God did. Now, verses 29 to 31 here, Paul's going to give us a list of the kinds of sins that destroy lives. He's about to give us a list of the kinds of sins that make people fools and make people sick in their minds and desires. So follow this list and see if anything on this list surprises you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. David's talking about a fool here. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are the kinds of sins that make people sick in their mind and unwell and makes them fools. You might hear that list and you might wonder, and I've wondered this, gossip, jealousy, disobedient to parents, yeah, sins. Do they really belong on the same list as murderers, haters of God, inventors of evil? Yeah, yes, yes, they do. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Here's why I went to Romans. If you don't think you're in this second illustration, if you don't think that you've been saved from being a fool to sin and, and being sick in your mind because of sin, everyone in this room can find themselves on that list that Paul just gave, which means everyone in this room, no matter how young you were when you got saved, no matter how clean living you were before Christ found you, everyone in this room has sinned the kinds of sin that make people sick fools on the brink of death. 
And I just want you to see that you were not well when the great physician found you. You were not well. We were all fools and sick in our minds. Do you know that? But even in that state, verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them again from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. Notice it's his word that heals him there. I remember in my salvation experience, I was just reading through the Gospel of John, and so many of you can relate to this. So many of you know what I'm about to say here. Reading through the Gospel of John, and one day I just found myself believing that what Christ was saying was true. I just found myself Okay, Jesus, I found myself believing, and I, and I knew that he was going to save me from destruction because he said so. He sent out his word, and it healed them. And you know what staying in his word did? It took my broken desires. It took my caliber that was off. It took my sickness, and the word of God healed me. And, and many of you can relate to that. It's the word of God that heals. The word of God, through the Holy Spirit, fixes our desires. And when somebody cries out to the Lord, when someone sees who he is in his word and they cry out to him and they stay there, they're healed by the great physician Jesus. He healed us. Verse 21, so because of that, because he didn't let us stay sick, because he didn't give us over to our foolishness, because he didn't let us make fools of ourselves to the point of, of death and hell, verse 21, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell the deeds in songs of joy. We're going to be singing here today. We've been singing here today. Tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Give thanks. You were in that camp. You were in that bracket of people. And he sent his word out. And he healed you. The last illustration, the last group of people here, starting in verse 23, the storm tossed. So remember, in the first illustration, it showed us a man who was lost. It was representing him Definitely both things were going on, but it was representing him more of a sufferer than a sinner, the first wandering lost man. He was like a victim to the hopelessness of the world. It didn't point out his sin. It didn't say anything about it. The middle two illustrations showed us people who sinned their way into their trouble. They, they got themselves there. It was their fault. Well, this last illustration, it's more like the first one. It looks at the helplessness, mostly, of someone who's suffering so what do we have here? We have a man who's in a storm where he has no control. Starting in verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Again, God is the one sending the storm to the sinner here. He did it. He lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. This is a person caught in the storms of life. Again, there's both things going on here. It says in verse 26, their courage melted away in their evil plight. This isn't an innocent victim, but it's focusing on the fact that they're a sufferer and at the mercy of the storm outside of them. So this is a person caught in the storms of life, and they have no control. You ever read some of the accounts of men in shipwrecks? Um, 
they said that they have zero control. You read some of those accounts, some boats split in half. They, they were at the mercy of the sea, lifting them up and crashing them down. They realized the sea was so much stronger than them. When they set out, maybe after a shipwreck, they had a way bigger respect for the power of the sea because it was going on outside of them. They couldn't control it. They were powerless next to the sea, staggering on their boat, just trying to survive, hardly able to stand. And that's like the storms of life. We don't actually have any control. We're always at the mercy of the things going on around us, of the things outside of us that we can't control. Cancer, money issues, marriage issues, relationships, deaths, disappointments. These things are all storms around us, and they crash us down. You, you might be lifted up right now. It's going to eventually crash down. That's the nature of life, and you have no control. It's like the ocean's so much stronger than you, you can't do anything about it from your boat, and sometimes it just feels like you're in your own little bubbling in your own you're just you and you can't do anything about that god why would you take that person away god why am i still single god why is marriage not working out the way that i thought it should be god why cancer why god you need to know that god sent this storm to crash you into himself God sent this storm on, on purpose to crash you down. Charles Spurgeon said this, I've learned to kiss the waves of life because they throw me on Christ, the rock of ages. As hard as those waves come, and as hard as those waves come crashing down, and as hard as we hit that rock, that rock is Christ. Where you land in your desperation, if you're one of God's people, is Christ. Cry out to him. So be, be thankful for deliverance, which God brings as he sees fit, but be thankful for the storm. I mean, how many of us here think that, oh, I just, I got to know God in, in the best days of my life. Everything was coming up for me and it was just, it was awesome. I was on cloud nine. No, how many of us here, we know Christ as deep as we do because of loneliness, because of suffering. Be thankful for the storm too. But again, I refrain, verse 28, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. You know, think of the New Testament, cast your cares on him because he cares for you. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distresses. Some of us think, some of us only consider the middle two categories. I sinned myself, my, I sinned my way into this. I did this to myself, so I don't really have the right to call on the Lord in the storm because I wouldn't be here if I wasn't such an idiot. True, but the psalm says here, they called out and he delivered them. He pitied them in the storm. Don't, don't ever think that Christ doesn't want to hear it because you got yourself there. He knows you got yourself there. You know you got yourself there. I know I got myself there. And yet, in any situation... In any storm, outside of you, within you, things crashing down outside, things crashing within, sin, covetousness, anger, all of those things, you cry out to the Lord, he delivers. You cry out to the Lord humbly, he's coming for you. Don't ever think that Christ doesn't want to hear it because you put yourself there. Don't ever think that you have no right to, to call out to him in the storm because you thought it's your fault. It, of course it's your fault course it's your fault we, this world would not be fallen if it wasn't for such as us amen but he called out to them and he delivered them 
out of their trouble. Verse 29, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. I know you see Christ here stopping the waves instantly on that sea. Peace, be still. Verse 30, then they were glad that the waters were quiet. It's okay to be glad when God gives you a break, when he sends peace. And he brought them to their desired, ha- uh, to their desired haven, that eternal city, right? Zephaniah says that he quiets us in his love. I think that's what's going on here. Even if the, stame, even if the storm is still raging, peace and be still, and he quiets us in his love. Christ sends the storm. That's clear here in the psalm. And Christ stops it when he sees fit. And you know what? Think of the first illustration. We're on our way to that eternal city. Christ is going to see to it that we get there. He takes us by the hand. He drags us to that eternal city. So no storm in life, even if it's a storm that concludes in death, no storm in life can stop you from making your destination to that city. Can only bring you to it. Verse 31, of course, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. That's what we're doing today. We're here in the congregation of people. We're collected as the body of Christ and we want to give thanks to him with our lives. So, so let's do that. The next section in your bulletins, God of the desert, starting in verse 33. Now, some of you are looking at the clock thinking, man, there's still 10 verses left. Uh, don't worry. We're going to look at these from more of a bird's eye view. Uh, there's wonderful details in here, but it's just one big hymn to God kind of, one big parable that proves one big point to conclude this psalm. And it's a point we've already been seeing here. God is control of every storm, every desert, every blessing, every suffering, every rescue. It's all God. So, so let me read these verses to you quickly. And then after I read them, I'm going to point some things out about them. So verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert. So he, br- he brings the wasteland, springs, into, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its, evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. So he, he can make the, the, the fruitful land dry and he can make the dry land fruitful again. And there he lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and they get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply, multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, through evil and sorrow, so through the oppression of the princes, he pours his contempt out on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of their affliction and makes their families like flocks. Again, remember, this is covenantal here. Nobody's promised families in the new covenant, but under the old covenant, that was a blessing. But just catch the point here with me. He makes their families like flocks. The uprights see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay, so what do we see here in those verses? What's the big point? God gives. God takes. When people are desperate, he saves. When people are saved and they get kind of haughty and proud, he brings low. When the sinful forget him, he brings suffering so that they can cry out to the Lord and so that he can deliver him and so that he can get the glory again. It's a cycle. So, so the fact that this is a cycle shows us something. It shows us that these four illustrations here that we looked at, 
they're not just a one-time thing, right? It's, it's not just describing our one-time initial salvation. It is doing that, but it's doing more than that. Yeah, we need to be thankful for our first salvation, but this is a cycle for every believer. Believers, you can still today as a believer find yourself in any of these four illustrations. Believers wander sometimes. Believers wander in hopelessness, helplessness, and, and they need to call on God again. If you're a believer, don't think you're done calling on God because you, you did that once. Keep calling on the Lord. Keep crying out to him. Believers have seasons where they're trapped in sin, and they need to call out to God again. Believers get rocked and cut down by the storms of life, and there they need Christ again and again, and you'll need him again, and he'll deliver you again and again and again because God designed it this way so that his people are always dependent on him. And you'll always have something to give thanks for. He wants you to know him as Savior. Some of you here, you don't know Christ in this way. You haven't cried out yet. Maybe you don't think that he would ever save you if you did. Maybe you see yourself in the middle two illustrations too much, and you are making the excuse that you are too distant a sinner, you've done too many things. You don't think he'd respond if you cried out to him. Well, Let God be true, even though every man was a liar. This psalm says that if you call on him, he's coming. What does Jesus say? Whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. Doesn't Jesus say that? He can't lie. And so, if you don't know Christ on that last day, if you never come to know Christ this way, you don't have the excuse that that you were too far off. Christ isn't stiff-arming you and keeping you away. He doesn't do that to anybody. He wants you to repent. He's not willing that you should perish, but that, that you should repent and turn to him and come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants you in his kingdom. So you don't have that excuse. Stop making that excuse. Cry out to the Lord. If you acknowledge that he's real, if you, if you know God is there, if you just think you're not enough, of course, read the psalm. It's, it's shot through with evidence that we're not enough. He's enough, right? So I want to take that excuse from you. But some of you here, you're not crying out because you don't see the point in calling out. You'd rather live your life. You'd rather really not think about this stuff. You know, I'm here because I was dragged here or I just really don't want to think about this stuff. It doesn't invade too much of my mind space. Well, let me plead with you here from the text If you don't call on Christ, you'll wander through the desert of life. You're not going to find a city there. Nothing's going to satisfy. So whatever next event you have planned in your mind right now, call it to mind. That's not going to be enough. You're going to wander through that desert of life. You're going to stay thirsty, and you will die in that desert. You'll be trapped in that cage of your own sin. You'll be rattling those bars of iron. The consequences of sin, the, the penalty for sin... And you'll never escape until you humble yourself and call on him. You'll die in that cage, and the cage will be thrown into hell. You'll be sick in your mind, not even able one day to see what's good and true anymore. And it will destroy you like a fool if you don't cry out to him. You'll be on that ship, and the storms of life will rock you. They will rock you and break you. And the last wave that's coming, that's barreling over the horizon to your measly little ship, it's the wave of God's justice. You can't stand that wave. That wave is too big for you. No matter how strong you think your ship is, no matter how much you think you can outsmart God, that wave is coming and it will cut you down if you don't call on Christ, if you don't cry out to him. I promise. 
You can deny that all you want. You can say, I don't believe that, so it doesn't affect me. Who changes reality in this text? Who's the one who calls the wilderness when it's, when it's a fruitful land and he makes it a wasteland? Who controls reality? Was it? No, it was God, right? Who's the one who takes the wasteland and makes it into a, a spring of living water? It's God. It's Christ. You don't control reality. It doesn't matter if you don't think this is true or not. It's true. This is your estate. This is how you are. And if you don't cry out to him, he will not come. You are so, so, so powerless. And you are so, so, so loved. So call out to him. Give thanks. And when you call out to him, when he comes, if you call out to him, not if, when he comes, give thanks. And so that's our psalm. It's, it's simple, really. Our God saves, and he commands us to give thanks for that salvation. And we will keep experiencing that until we reach that city. And so there's only one obvious application I can leave you with here today. There's only one clear, obvious thing that we can take away from this, and the psalmist has said it. Give thanks. Which leads us to our last section in your bulletin insert. Thanksgiving is no small work. Why do I title this section like that? Well, many times I get the sense that we don't see Thanksgiving as as a big work. It's kind of like maybe a very small work or a responsive work or a background work and street evangelism. That's a big work, right? But Thanksgiving, yeah, it's a good application, but what do I do about that? It's maybe a small work, even if it counts, we think, but I want to show you something here from God's word. I, I think that we don't, consider thanksgiving a a big work a a good work a great work we don't consider that a hearty application because we're proud because what is thanksgiving you're not doing anything all you're doing is saying back to the lord what he did and saying thanks god thank you that's all you're doing so it makes nothing of you and it makes everything of god aren't those the best kinds of work the ones that you can take no credit for the ones that you can have no glory for the ones that only give god the credit and give you all the peace aren't those the best kind of work It glorifies him the most because it makes us small and it makes him big. Thanksgiving admits that we need him, and when we needed him, he really was there. That's what Thanksgiving is. But beyond that, you need to realize that not only is Thanksgiving an amazing work, an amazing application to go and do in the world, Thanksgiving is the background to every other big work, every other work that could count that you could ever do. Thanksgiving is the necessary background of that. Thanksgiving is the table that the works sit on, and if the table wasn't there, the works would fall to the ground and shatter. Let me convince you of that from this last text, Colossians three fifteen to 17. Notice how many times in these three verses, I'll read for you, Paul says to be thankful, and then just see how, he, how he's using that. So verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you do it in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you want any of the songs that we're singing this morning to count as an offering of worship to God? 
Do it with thanksgiving. Do, do I want teaching and admonishing? I could be doing nothing right now. Do I want any of this to count for anything? I need to do it with thanksgiving in my heart to God. Do you want anything in your life to count? Do you want to be there on the last day with things that you did for Christ to matter? Just one life and it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You want anything you do to count for anything. Whatever you do, do it with thankfulness in your hearts to God the Father through Christ. All of your works have to be bathed in thanksgiving so that you're acting out of response to your salvation and not, and not trying to earn it. Otherwise, you'll forget where you were. You'll, you'll forget how dependent you are on him. And you'll find yourself trying to work your way to God instead. So, so thank him and acknowledge that he's already totally saved you from your distress. Acknowledge that to him and that you're helpless without him. And then, and then your works will matter for the kingdom of God. You want anything to count, be thankful. So if, if all you do this week is keep up with the storm of life, crying out to the Lord, staggering on that ship, if all you do is keep up with life and you thank God for Christ within it, you have done a greater thing than you know. So people of God, be thankful. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. God, we were fools. God, we were in that cage. We were wandering in that desert. God, we were on that ship. And we were going to drown. And you saw fit for those who cried out to you to save them. And what a glorious salvation. Not just to get out of or evade a situation, but God, to know Christ. To know the love of Christ that, and the peace that comes with that, God, that surpasses all understanding. Lord, may people who don't know you in this way cry out to you and give thanks when you show up for them. God, may the people who do know Christ as Savior keep us low, Lord. Keep us lowly before you so that we are always dependent on you like a little child, because that's the reality, whether we see it or not. So Lord, would you use the storms of life to prove that to us so that we can cry out to you and so that you can save and show your mighty hand and so that we can abound in thanksgiving to the glory of Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever. Please do this, God, for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.